Welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And we have a lot of news for you on ARM's new architecture for machine learning at the edge, Amazon making its own IoT chips, Google hiring a Samsung exec, plus we've got new wearable news, smart glasses, and a HomePod review from Kevin. All this plus... We have our guest, Alexandros Marinos, who is going to be talking about the best and fastest growing IoT hardware platforms for both consumer prototyping, consumer products at scale, and the industrial internet. But first, let's hear a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Ring. Ring, the connected doorbell and security camera maker. Ring's mission is to make neighborhoods safer. Today, over a million people use the Ring video doorbell to help protect their homes. Ring knows that home security begins at the front door, but it doesn't end there. So now they're extending the same level of security to the rest of your home with the Ring floodlight cam. Just like Ring's amazing doorbell, the floodlight cam is a motion-activated camera and floodlight that connects right to your phone with HD video, two-way audio, and more. So you can see and speak to visitors and even set off an alarm right from your phone. I have tried the Ring doorbell, but I have not tried the Ring floodlight cam. And I will say that I really enjoyed my Ring doorbell. It did its job super well. With Ring, you're always home. So for listeners of our show, save up to $150 on a Ring security kit when you go to ring.com slash Stacy. That's S-T-A-C-E-Y. So go to ring.com slash Stacy and you can get $150 off your Ring security kit. Okay, Kevin, we are back with what are we going to start with? Machine learning at the edge. Woo! Yeah, we have to start with chips because that's your thing. It is my thing. I love the chips. Me so, too. Potato chips. Kale oh, chips. Oh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not those chips. Corn chips. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I am a little hungry. <laughs> but we're actually talking about semiconductors because who doesn't love a good semiconductor story? Basically, what's happening is this week, ARM said that it is going to build a new architecture for machine learning at the edge. And this is big news. You don't just like mess up your architecture for no apparent reason. But what they've decided is they need massive parallel processing at the edge at a very low power. They're doing this in a couple different ways. They're going to launch two different flavors of this. One is an object detection flavor, which is for computer vision specifically. And then the other is just generic machine learning at the edge. And, oh, Kevin, let's talk about why machine learning at the edge is important. I mean, I feel like we do this all the time, but... Well, let me kick that off then with a question to you. In terms of edge devices, what do you think these will find their way into? I think they'll find their way first into things like cameras. I think also maybe some smart speakers. You probably will also see them... I'm going to go with cameras and smart speakers for the first initial wave of them. And I'll say that because cameras need to, if you can do object detection at the edge. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is we should say there's two flavors of machine learning. There's the training portion where you train the computer how to recognize something. And that takes just typically is done in the cloud because it takes massive computing power, massive parallel processing. You show the computer thousands and thousands of images and they're like, learn how to recognize a dog versus a cat. And then there's the execution, the inference part of that. And that basically 
once you've trained a computer, you've built a model, and then that model gets executed at the edge. So it's important to know that. What ARM is saying is they will actually be able to do both execution and some inference at the edge. And that's a big deal. It is because, as you mentioned, the you know the cloud approach. I noticed in ARM's documentation, they have they discuss neural network frameworks, and they they say their neural network software translates Google's TensorFlow, for example, which is the big machine yes. learning backbone of Google. You know, it's TensorFlow everywhere. You wouldn't see it or hear it called TensorFlow, but the product it delivers is coming to a lot of devices. So I'm wondering, and I know we don't discuss these on, on the show that much, I'm wondering how many phone makers will integrate this and we see it first there as it comes out to IoT type devices. And the only reason I say that is because I know that, uh, is it Huawei with their Kirin processors have some I'll say AI chips in them now, as well as uh, who else is working on that? I want to say Samsung, but not in any products right now. So I'm just wondering if this will filter out through phones first and then float further to the edge. I imagine they will. I also will say that we will see these for sure in security cameras Mm -hmm. and possibly drones. Actually, drones is a really interesting use case for something like that. So I should correct something, though, because they have the two machine learning and then they have the object detection processors. The object detection processor will only do inference. So basically, that's not going to be training at the edge. So you can't train on object detection at the edge. Right. So that's going to be provided the information. It'll have a model and then it'll execute on that. Right. that's okay, though. What they're saying this can do is they're going to have, you can show people the direction they're facing, you can do gesture and pose. And this is all based, the object detection is based on their acquisition of Apical, which I had talked to years ago and was like super excited about and was so pumped when ARM just like bought them. So I'm glad to see that acquisition finally making its way into some hardware designs. And I don't know what else to tell you guys about this other than it's pretty cool. <laughs> Yeah, they're not alone. There's a lot of companies doing this. And we're going to talk about another one in a moment. This is called Project Trillium. So if you see references to that, you guys, we should see the object detection processor. We're not going to expect any silicon based on this until mid to late 2019 at the earliest. So that means it's not actually going to be an end products until like 2020. So this is far reaching. Right, because ARM doesn't make chips. They just create the the architecture that chip makers use. Yes. So like Qualcomm, Samsung, other people, Apple could- MediaTek. They get an architecture or a plano license and they will make their own stuff. Yeah, this might not sound like it's related, but I'm going to, it is, and I'm going to mention it. Apparently the Hive camera uses a first generation OD chip from, based on ARM. So this is the second OD generation chip from ARM or architecture from ARM, I should say. Um, and I'm just wondering, I'm not familiar with the Hive camera, so I'm wondering what Hive kind of object is, detection it has. Hive is from British Gas. It's there. It's sold in the UK. And that's because this isn't actually from ARM. It's from Apical, which is the company that ARM bought. I see. So yes, it does have object detection. It is, I think it's facial. I think it's facial recognition. Okay. But I don't know beyond much beyond that. Yeah, and this will do much more. And, and by the way, you guys, if you're curious, Hive is actually planning and is en route to the U.S. They're trying to build their U.S. presence here. With hmm. it's a subscription based service, though, so it's you get the hardware and you pay the money, and it's lovely. So, a little bit about that. Okay, let's move on to 
More chips. More chips. Amazon. <laughs> so we, we, I could talk chips all day. But Amazon is actually, so the big news this week was last December when Amazon acquired Blink, which was the wireless, the battery-powered camera, and they also make a doorbell. So when Amazon acquired Blink, it was a deal valued at about $90 million, which fits. The interesting thing is, and I said this last December, is that Blink is not just a camera maker. It actually made a an image recognition chip technology, a video. It's actually a video processing technology chip. And it did it at super low power. And the guys who were behind the chip company were like, man, we're selling these chips for like five bucks to like DVD makers. And this is just no profit, just terrible business for us. So they were like, what else could we use this for? And they decided to build a video camera to make use of their technology. And that's how Blink was formed. So Amazon, when they bought Blink, they got that chip technology. In addition to that, the information is reporting that Amazon is developing a chip designed for artificial intelligence to work on the Echo and other hardware powered by Madam A. So this story from the information is talking about Amazon's acquisition of a company a couple years ago called Annapurna. And Annapurna was doing networking chips, and they were dealing primarily with the software layer of networking. So creating basically, they call it a fabric in the chip world. And fabrics are used to manage, like, moving information around the chip is probably the easiest way to describe a fabric. Do you think that's fair, Kevin? I think that's fair. Okay. So Annapurna is a fabric maker. And when you're talking about machine learning, this is super important because when I talk about machine learning, I keep saying the word massively parallel processes. And that's exactly how these jobs are divided up. So you, you send one job to one core, another job to another core, and so on and so on. But you need a fabric to manage all that. And so Annapurna is good at that. And then we've got the Blink video processing. So that makes sense. And then Amazon has its own chip designer. So I think what we're going to see is some intelligence at the edge happening. And it sounds like it's going to happen both from companies that are traditional chip providers, but also if you're going to be building consumer hardware, you're going to need to do it yourself. And I'm, I'm wondering a couple things about this. I totally see where this is going, and I agree with you. The first thing I thought of, because everybody's talking about, oh, the speed this is going to bring to Madam A's responses is going to be amazing. It, everybody kept focusing on that. I'm like, well, yeah, but also I think there may be something here when you push a lot of that intelligence away from the cloud down to the edge, you improve the perception of privacy. Yes. And that's something that right now, all of these smart speakers are fighting. You know, nobody wants these always on microphones sending all the information in the cloud. Well, if you can do all of it with ML at the edge and not, and not rely on the cloud, that really helps with that area, I think. It does. The question then becomes what data does get pushed up because you do mm -hmm. need, and eventually when you can actually do training at the edge, then you actually get the opportunity to personalize services. Until mm -hmm. then, all of your personalization will still go back up to the cloud. Right, right. And the other thing that jumped out at me on this is a definite trend here. Obviously, I didn't know about Arm Trillium when this Amazon news came out, but it relates back to that. Everybody seems to be making chips for the edge for their own products, such as Apple is using its A8 processor from the iPhone 6 or 7, I forget which, in the HomePod, for example. Now you'll see Amazon devices eventually have this. Google has been 
talked about with creating their own SOCs and such. They did the I, visual core for Pixel. That's right. They did. They did. Which and is the TPUs for the cloud. <laughs> and the TPUs. Exactly. Exactly. So it's definitely a trend. And I'm wondering in Amazon's case in particular, will this be limited to Amazon hardware only? And I'm going to guess yes. And the reason I'm saying yes, as a guess, is because they let you freely use Madam A's voice services, but there are very specific features and functions that are not on non-Amazon devices with Madam A's voice services. I'm just, I'm just wondering if Amazon keeps that chip feature set in-house. They would be silly not to at this point, I would think. Well, but then again, they also cut off potential hardware partners, such as, you know, the Sonos, for example, has Madam A in it. I can't do everything that an Echo can do, but I can do 90% of it. Would they want to take all these hardware manufacturers off? It's good a tough question. call. It's yeah. a tough call. So, Okay. That's a good thing to think about, Kevin. Mm -hmm. like all right. I will, I will think about it. You keep thinking about it. <laughs> Meanwhile, we will move on to Google. Hiring a Samsung executive to focus on IoT, specifically in the cloud. Yeah, not just any executive either. This is the guy, his name is In Jong Ri. He used to be the EVP and head of Samsung Pay. This goes back about two and a half years ago. And he was instrumental with Bixby. So... And it's interesting because I, what did I read? I read something this week. Oh, I know what it was. There was an interview with Google's Rick Osterloh. And it was a really good interview about getting Google AI into all of Google's products. The one question I didn't see asked, or maybe it was asked and wasn't answered is, what does he think of Madam A and Bixby and other named, you know, assistants? I don't want to name them all because I don't want to set everybody's devices off. I'd be very curious to see what Google thinks, but now they've got somebody who's coming from the Bixby fold. Indeed. So yes, I think this is a good story. Samsung actually has built a really good cloud business, believe it or not. They're now it used to be Arctic, now it's SmartThings Cloud. Their focus on connecting everything as a neutral third party, it is really easy to use. I've even I have actually used it and I'm kind of stunned by that, but <laughs> it's a good implementation. And I know I've talked to people who are using them. So to the extent now this guy worked on the Knox security system, Bixby and Samsung pay. So I don't yes. know how much time he spent on their cloud stuff. But if he can bring that Samsung really is trying to be this neutral player, right? So if he can bring some of that to Okay, coming from inside of Google, and I know I can talk about this, plus my own just uh, research into this, Samsung is very, very good at acting neutral, but in the real world at the end of the day, Samsung's in it for Samsung. And I say that because they often recreate things that Android already has, but maybe doesn't do well. A lot of what's in Android actually did come from Samsung. Split screen multitasking on a phone, Samsung did it first with their Galaxy Note 2. Eventually, Android just accepted it. Samsung's Knox, which is their security system for Android devices in the enterprise, that was competing head-to-head -head with Google's Android enterprise stuff. Sure enough, after about two or three years of competing, Google said, you know, we're going to, they worked an agreement out and they integrated Knox features into Android. Knox is still separate, but Google subsumes a lot of what Samsung does. And obviously Samsung gets compensated for that. And I'm wondering in this case, I'm wondering if either they're part of their cloud business, if they've got some expertise that Google doesn't have, or with their digital assistant, 
if there are some things that Bixby does more efficiently or, or does that Google Assistant doesn't do, you watch, give it a year or so, and it'll get subsumed into Google. Okay. Well, that's that doesn't sound terrible then for Samsung. Oh, no, not at all. Not at all. No, no, no. I, and I'm not, when I say this, I don't mean don't expect Bixby to replace Google Assistant. Oh, Bixby no. would, yeah, Bixby would probably still live on its own on Samsung-only devices, or unless, in a best case, I think for users, Bixby and Google Assistant just become best of breed in one product, and that product would be Google Assistant, of course, and it would go on all Samsung phones, and Bixby would essentially disappear inside of Google Assistant. That would be, actually be nice, because I need one uh, less yeah. in, I need one less thing. I have three in my room right now, so yes, I agree. Okay. Not Bixby's, three digital assistants. Three digital assistants. You <laughs> could have four if you turned on Samsung. If I turn on that Galaxy S8, yes, but I'm not going to do that right now. Okay. Moving on from Google, Samsung, the mysteries they weave, let's talk about a new radio in wearables, Kevin. Yeah, this surprised me. I don't really know too much. I just got a press release before the show from Altair Semiconductor, and they announced their collaboration with Ericsson and Sony Mobile. What they're going to do at Mobile World Congress is demonstrate a new wearable device. Well, it's a wristband for diabetic patients that connects to a continuous glucose monitoring device. The interesting part is, because we've seen these kinds of things before, they're using Altair's LTEM chipset for cellular connectivity without, so you can send your data back to the monitoring system without having your phone. And I thought it was interesting because when we talk about, you know, Cat1M, LTEM, et cetera, we talk about a lot of devices at the edge that run for a long time on a battery. So that's why, you know, they use low power radios and so on, not wearable devices. So this is kind of interesting to me. I agree. And you've got, I mean, you've got your Apple Watch with its own SIM and I think it's a 4G connection. It's so, a, yeah, it's an eSIM with an LTE connection. Yep. So, and especially for like a diabetic, it makes sense to have this direct line out for, cause you've got to send that data to the cloud to be monitored. And I assume, especially for like elderly or children, you actually don't want to just collect and store for a while because if something's wrong, you need to be able to act on right. it fairly quickly. Right. The funny thing is, just only because you brought up the Apple Watch, apps have really not been built to take advantage of the LTE connection. And by that, I mean, I leave my phone at home and I'll go out for a few hours at a time. Sure, I get messages, I get phone calls, I can chat with you, Stacey, you know, et cetera. But when I go run, for example, all that data is captured with GPS, heart rate, and so on. I have to actually go back home and sync it over through to my phone. I can't do that remotely. Uh, for, you can't go direct. Right. It may make sense for now from a battery perspective. Mm, it's not a lot of data. Okay. I mean, pe people are using these things <laughs> for phone calls. They use it for a phone call. And I can tell you, you lose 1% per minute on a phone call. That's why if you you know spend an hour on the phone, you're going to lose 60% of your Apple Watch battery life. Well, but, I but mean, then, I mean, that is another example, though. I mean, you're still going to, it's not much data, but every little bit counts. I mean, if I start thinking yeah. about the data that just goes back and forth from my phone to the cloud, right? it is a ridiculous amount of data. True. True, but but even so, you could optimize like in in a health situation because it's monitoring my my heart rate. It doesn't need to send all that heart rate data back to the cloud or anywhere until I get home anyway. Unless maybe there's a you know some smarts in there and says, hey, this guy might be having a heart attack or something right now. That data immediately gets sent on the always on connection. You don't have to send all the data. 
That's true. And that's where we're going to see some really cool stuff with machine learning. The hierarchical activation is what they call it. And it's basically you have a chip that senses something and then it's it takes the next action. So you have something that says, oh, this is a trigger. I recognize that that is a trigger and it's important and I'm going to wake up something else so I can wake up the you know modem and say, hmm. phone home. Sorry, I got to bring back the machine learning and the chips back into this. So, okay. I know you're disappointed with apps taking advantage of these things. Let's talk about, ooh, let's talk about something fun that we missed last week. We missed two things last week. One, we missed Intel Smart Glasses, which we're about to talk about. And two, we missed celebrating our 150th podcast episode. That's right, we did. So, bad on us. Oh, well. So, let's talk about those Smart Glasses. Yeah, and I was very interested in this only because I purchased, although I was reimbursed for it through work, Google Glass back in 2014. Still have them, don't use them. Obviously, not a successful product, at least in the way that Google might have hoped. It is being used in certain verticals in enterprise right now. But other than that, nope, can't buy them or anything. Intel smart glasses are similar, but different. And they're different enough to have a lot more potential, in my opinion, because they do less. What I mean by that is they really are a, a notification system for the most part. They also don't look like anything from futuristic. They look like regular glasses frames. They have all of the chips and battery and connectivity inside the uh, side of the frames. You can't even see them. There's no prism display actually sticking out from these things like Google Glass had. Instead, there's a prism built into the glass and it projects using a low power laser right on your retina from the prism notifications. It does one thing and one thing very well, and it doesn't look outrageous. So I'm looking forward to seeing what might be done with them. This isn't something Intel's going to sell, that you're going to have a developer preview where people can try and write apps for it later this year. And I'm kind of curious if they even come to market because there was talk about Intel selling off its AR group a couple months ago. So we'll have to see. And, you know, to me, this, I know people are going to be like, ooh, AR, but I'm just like, dude, let's just talk about the power of a heads up display for like, you know, think about turn by turn directions, you know, when you're walking around the city. Right now, my phone will vibrate, but I still don't know if I'm supposed to turn right or left. I have to pick up the phone and look at it. And I just look at this and I'm like, how awesome would it be to be talking to someone and have some sort of indication of who this is? That's just me because I can't mm -hmm. tell faces really well. Well, you, you would also need a camera for that. And these have no camera. Right. Okay. That is true. You know who people are based on their Bluetooth or Wi-Fi data. Mm. But we're not supposed to know that. No, no. <laughs> That's part of that privacy implications. Okay. So no camera. I will be sad. I will be sad for a little while. Plus, yeah, no speakers, no mic. Oh, nothing. so I can't talk to it. I don't believe so. You know, this reminds me of the Amazon Echo, because when it came out very early, all it did was you basically set timers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it was not great. I mean, because it tied into Bing as the search engine, so it couldn't answer that many questions. It couldn't control smart home devices. It just basically played music and set timers. That's but why I didn't buy one then. You didn't buy one, but enough people did, and the use case became gradually so compelling that... Look at us now. Oh, how yeah. Many, once once they made it smarter, you know, it's with home control. That's when I dove all in. Absolutely. And so I, I like, I mean, some of my favorite devices just do something really well. And yeah. I think there's a lot of power in that. So I'm keen on this, especially as someone who wears glasses. So. Same. Yeah. All right. Let us move on to the HomePod. 
because Kevin, <laughs> he, neither of us really wanted to order it, but we decided we had to because you guys really have a lot of questions about the HomePod. Please yeah. feel free to send them to us. But I, you know, and it's funny, and it, it just goes back to what I just said. I didn't want to buy the Echo when it first came out for the same reason or reasons that I don't want to buy, didn't want to buy the HomePod when it came out. There's two things to talk about with the HomePod. Obviously, there's the sound, and then there's the smarts. Unfortunately, in my opinion, the smarts actually went into the sound, meaning sonically engineered, Apple did an excellent, excellent job. It doesn't it doesn't blow me away like it did the early reviewers. And a lot of those early reviewers got a, I'm just going to say, they got a dog and pony show from Apple. And Apple showed off the speaker and compared it to certain other speakers. But I, I have since found out the setup on those was not the same. Like one of those speakers was set up for Bluetooth instead of Wi-Fi. I mean, so I get why Apple does that. And I can appreciate that. But, you know, I... It just doesn't blow me away. It is really, really good for a single unit device. I don't want to say single speaker because it has multiple speakers. It has seven tweeters and and one woofer, and it does sound good. And it's got the smarts, the intelligence to auto-tune itself. When you first put it down, it will sample sound in the room. You don't even hear it, and it will configure itself for the room that you're in, which is great. It'll do that again every time you move it. Unfortunately, I don't see the benefit of that because you have to plug this thing in. You're not going to move it that much. So... That's neither here nor there. Um, Wait, I have a I have a moving example, actually. Okay, okay. So my daughter takes her Amazon Echo, it's in her room, and she brings it into the bathroom for getting ready and baths. So she actually moves her Echo back and forth constantly. Because she doesn't have a tap. Because she doesn't have a tap. Because yeah, I'm see, a that's, cool mother. That's what I do. I use the tap. To, the tap I move around all the time. Okay. Well, yeah. so the point there is it's, I could see a use case where someone yeah. might do it. It's, oh, it's no doubt. Weird. No doubt. I, I don't think the majority of HomePods are going to be moving is my point. Probably true. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> so just one more po- point about the sound before we talk about the smarts. I did a blind listening test with different music genres. I did the best I could to make it as equal as possible setting the sound levels to be the same. Now I did it with the HomePod and I did it with a pair of Sonos ones. And one of my tech savvy friends came over and listened and he's like, well, wait, you're using two speakers. I'm like, I am. And he's like, well, why? I said, because they're the same price. And he's like, well, you can't put that into the equation. I said, of course you can. I said, if you have $349 to buy a HomePod, then you need to compare it to what else do you get for your money? And for $349, you can get two Sonos ones. He couldn't really tell much of a difference. Nobody really could. In fact, people who had a preference, and I'm not saying that it was the best speaker, but it was the preferred sound for them, was actually the pair of Sonos ones more often than not. So I don't know if that surprises people or whatever. No, but I mean, Sonos is the pioneers of smart speakers. I mean, they, they've been doing similar things to this for, for years. Yeah, they have. And I'll I'll say, I'll give Apple credit here and say they've improved the experience in terms of setup. It's very simple in terms of using integration with Apple Music. Obviously, that's all it integrates with right now. That just works. Whereas Sonos, it does that, but it kind of, there's like steps within steps to do that, right? So they offer more, but it's a little more complicated. If you just want the drop dead simple, plug it in and start playing Apple Music, HomePod makes sense. So from a smart standpoint, I am shocked and I, I said this in my written review, Siri is fragmented now. Siri does not work the same or doesn't have the same features from an iOS device to the HomePod. 
And that just boggles my mind. There are things you can't do. You can't set two timers. You can't access your calendar or create an event. It's just really strange. It, it just seems like it's half-baked. And that kind of goes along with some of the other features that aren't there that are coming. And that is multi-room audio and linking two of these for stereo. That's coming, but it's just odd to me. But Series very responsive, as you'd expect, based on the uh, A8 chip inside. The microphones for listening, Apple nailed it. You can you don't have to yell even if the music is cranked way up. It's really good. But again, if you aren't in Apple Music, if you're not on iOS, if you're not using HomeKit, this just isn't going to appeal to you by default, I think. It does not appeal to me. Not yet. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, I actually do use iOS, and I am an Apple Music subscriber. Our family is. But I still wouldn't buy this right now. I, this is, again, it's just like the Amazon Echo. I wouldn't buy it when it first came out. It wasn't compelling enough at the time. All right. Well, if you have HomeKit questions for Kevin, and gosh, I bet you do, call us at our IoT podcast listener hotline at 512-623-7424. And... Let us move to answer a question from one of our listeners. The IoT Podcast Listener Hotline is brought to you by Schlage, maker of electronic locks. Schlage electronic locks offer unparalleled convenience and simplicity all on their own, right out of the box. So you don't have to have a smart home system to benefit. To see what's possible, visit schlage.com to learn more. All right. This week, we have a question from Sam. Hello, Stacey. Hello, Kevin. It's Sam Setti here from the United Kingdom again. My question is, I bought two spots, one for my teenage daughter and one for the younger one. When I went to go and set up the calendar, the Spotify Music or Amazon Unlimited, I couldn't have the option to change it so that their calendar appeared and their music. So at the moment, I'm stuck with the fact that my children have all of my diary entries appearing on their spots, all of my photos and my dad's playlist. Is there a way that I can change that so each of my children has their own music, photos, and playlists for calendars and other items? Thanks a lot. Love the show. Speak to you soon. Bye-bye. Okay, Sam. This is a pain point near and dear to my heart because I have been trying to use my Spotify account on Amazon Echo without using only mine. I've been trying to let my daughter use hers because we have the premium Spotify that has multiple accounts. And by golly, it doesn't work. So I hate to tell you this, you're going to have to either lie or suffer. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, that's so grim. Um, well, depending on, depending on their ages. Depending on their ages. So my daughter is under the age of 13. So the only thing she can be in the Amazon Echo universe is part of my household, but she can't actually have her email affiliated with anything except for allowances and her Kindle, like the free time, Kindle free time stuff. So I can't associate her email address with a calendar or with her Spotify account because she's underage. After she's 13, because of the COPA Act, the Children's Online Protection Privacy Protection Act, then Amazon can take her email and I guess start collecting information about her and then she can use it. So in that case, all you would have to do is register those devices for each of your daughters to their account. So they would have to have an Amazon account. You would register those devices, and then you would link all of your accounts as a family. That's kind of complicated. But to mm -hmm. register the device, you go into the Madam A app, you go into settings, 
and you're going to see all of the different Amazon Echo devices in your household. And from there, it's going to under about, it'll say the device is registered to so-and-so. If it's registered to you, because which it probably is if you bought it, just deregister it. And when you do that, you're going to connect it to your daughter's account. And I should, this actually brings up a point that I probably should have mentioned in the HomePod bit, because this is a lot like iCloud and family sharing and iOS. I wanted to mention that the HomePod only supports one user, one voice, one iCloud account right now. So multiple people in the home will not be recognized. It's just everybody's one user. And that's a problem for your personal information. Oh, that is a problem. Mm -hmm. And you find the household, like you find the area about who you're in a household with under the same settings menu. But instead of going to each individual device, you keep scrolling and scrolling until you get to, there's a section that says in a household with these people. I believe you have to set up your household from the Amazon account itself on the web. You can't do it from this app. Mm. So that is that is how I've done it. I don't see a way to do it otherwise. I may be wrong, but it, it makes sense actually that you would have to go into your, and I believe I mean, it has to be mutual. Like there's communication between people about setting up accounts. The benefit is you can share your Kindle books together. Woo! And yes, that <laughs> that is our answer for you, Sam. And if any of you guys have questions, give us a call at 512-623-7424. And now I believe it is time for us to say goodbye to each other, Kevin, and move along to our guest this week, who is Alexandros Marinos, the CEO of Resin.io. This sounds esoteric. It's he does it. His company does containers at the edge. But basically, the whole conversation is about what people are using to build their IoT devices on and what it takes to actually create something that's resilient enough for the Internet of Things. He's a good guest. So stay tuned. everyone, welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham. And today's guest is Alex Marinos, who is the CEO of Resin.io. Hi, Alex. How are you doing today? Hi, Stacey. I'm very good. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Man, I am super excited because we get to talk about something that, okay, not everybody's excited about, but my nerdy self is super pumped because we're going to be talking about development platforms for industrial and enterprise IoT. And there's a whole lot of stuff changing, like a whole lot of stuff on the market now that's mm -hmm. relatively new. But before we get into that, we want to let people know who you are. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Resin.io and what you're doing there? So Resin.io is a platform that allows you to deploy containerized payloads to embedded devices, edge devices that can run Linux. So we built all of the toolkits that you need to really get all of the infrastructure out of the way and just deploy your code to your devices wherever they are in the world. And the big idea here is containers at the edge. And we should probably explain a little bit about why that matters so much for IoT. Oh, absolutely. When we started Resin, we, we were developers that were focused on cloud uh, technologies, and we kind of had landed on this project to do with what we call today edge compute. And this was the biggest problem we found. It, updating those devices, managing them at scale was incredibly difficult. And while in the cloud, we had this incredibly great experience with you know single commands to update everything at, at the same time, with the devices, we actually were back in the 80s. We were literally going around with USB sticks or, you know, doing very error-prone processes. In containers, we found essentially the loophole that allows us to 
through that, pass all of the sort of cloud workflows that we know and love to these devices. So with containers, we can update the devices without rebooting them. If something goes wrong, you can update them again. There's a host operating system underneath that can sort of catch you if anything goes wrong. And that level of virtualization, really, it's, it's a form of virtualization that we were never able to have previously on edge devices. So it really changes development entirely. And it starts to feel, while not identical to cloud development, it starts to feel a lot more like it. Right. It gives you kind of flexibility, a little bit of maybe more comfort. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't want to say certainty because nothing really is certain in this world, but we'll go with that. Absolutely. So your client yep. base, who are they? So our, our customers, we call them fleet owners. Uh, they are people who were like we used to be, have you know hundreds, thousands of devices, sometimes more that they need to manage and they are sort of geographically distributed. So they, they have this problem on their hands and honestly, they don't want to focus on it. They have other things. They need to develop, you know, the machine learning or the digital signage or the tidal turbines or whatever it is that their device needs to do, that software, not focus on how do I get my container from A to B? How do I make sure it keeps running? So when you guys started out, one of the cool things that you did was you ported a Docker container to ARM-based silicon. Talk to me about how you guys determined what this audience needs. We were very privileged because we really were building for ourselves. So our initial vision was actually, we need to build Heroku for IoT. We need this one command that you just write, and it updates everything. So by just pulling on that thread, we realized Heroku was using containers, then Docker was very early days then. It was like 0.4, 0.6. I mean, we're talking 2013. So we found that and we, as developers, we knew that this was going to be big, but it was, it didn't support ARM. So we essentially had a choice to make. Are we going to do our own thing or are we going to try to make this work? We decided we were a small team. We didn't want to really reinvent the wheel. We still don't want to reinvent the wheel. So we decided to just try and make Docker work. And that's, that's what we did. We put uh, some of our best, best people that worked on it for a month or two. And again, they cracked it. And that's really how people started noticing us because we were we got sort of the first sort of embedded container toolkit working. Of course, in the beginning, everybody was really confused about why would you even want to do this? But that, that's a separate question, I guess. I'm like, now we know why. Because now we're all like, ah, yes. I have built devices. This is terrible. So right now you're in a unique position to see what people are putting your platform on as they try to start building or managing these fleets. So what kind of development platforms are people using? So we we definitely see something that I think a lot of people are seeing, but maybe are not realizing how intense it is, which is that the Raspberry Pi is just incredibly ubiquitous. So we will see it, of course, in you know the basic projects, maybe makers, maybe university students, but we will also see it in the biggest companies in the world in prototyping. We will see it in startups. And then we see it in product and we see it in production and we see it a lot further along than anybody ever imagined. So that's definitely something that if you if you see our sort of our fleet stats, that would be a very visible thing that would stand out. There is definitely another trend there around the Intel Nook, which is something that Intel did. Uh, I don't think they were thinking about it exactly in this way, but this is the space that uses things that nobody thought about that way. This is used as, a, as when you want more power more processing power. People use the Intel Nook, you know, with i5s, i7, sort of desktop class computers, uh, CPUs. Yes. And and for the audience who might be looking at this, it's the Intel Nook is (laughs) N-U-C. Exactly. I think it means the next unit of computing. That is exactly what it means. (laughs) 
Yeah, and also recently we're beginning to see another very exciting category device picking up, which is around the NVIDIA TX1, TX2 family. So you have essentially a fairly powerful ARM chip, but then a very, very powerful GPU there to do deep learning on on the edge. These ones haven't scaled yet. So we, we have a lot of people working on them on the first stages of the project, but the velocity we see behind that is something that's unmistakable. We do not see that for other device types other than the Nook and the and the Pi. And so if I'm trying to divide these up, if I'm doing a Pi, should I assume that that is kind of a prototyping early stage device? Or is this something that's actually being used in real production deployments? The thing that we've, we've realized is that people will, will push prototyping out into production as far as they can. So while, yes, canonically we see it in prototyping, we actually do see real products built that include a Raspberry Pi inside them or sometimes multiple Raspberry Pis depending on the product. But we do actually people going out with hundreds, sometimes thousands of, of Raspberry Pis. This is surprising, but nevertheless true. Are there downsides to that? I mean, like when I think about Raspberry Pis, it's a basic ARM chip. I don't think of it as being, you know, particularly hardened for a security perspective. Right. I mean, the issues with the Raspberry Pi really are three, and they're kind of big. There is the networking aspect that it doesn't support five gigahertz networking, which a lot of business networks are. Is the power aspect? You know, you you have a USB sort of mini with uh, five volts. It's quite kind of finicky. And then, of course, there's a storage aspect where you have an SD card and I might get lost, it might get corrupted, you know, all of that stuff, which all of these choices make perfect sense for what the Raspberry Pi Foundation was trying to do. They were trying to make an educational platform to spread the love of computing, which they have succeeded beyond anyone's in degree. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Now. On the security front, yes, the Raspberry Pi does not have, you know, the sort of TPM or trusted computing mm-hmm. extensions. I mean, it, it doesn't expose them, at least to the users. But then again, as we've researched the space, it's not like most others in a much, are in a much better place. Some people will advertise those capabilities, but there are subtle flaws that make them non-usable. I think over the next few years, we're going to see these things come out. I really, we're really excited for them, but I wouldn't say that the, the Raspberry Pi is in a you know, significantly worse state than most other platforms out there right now. Okay. So that's the Pi. So people are using it. Maybe it's a little wonky. With the the Intel Nook, how long have you seen this being used? The Nook actually was from the early days, so a few years now. People really sort of, especially in an industrial context, you know, if you're in a university or in a startup and you kind of stretch your arm, you probably will grab a Raspberry Pi. If you are in an industrial setting and you stretch your arm, you probably will grab a Nook. So I literally call it the Raspberry Pi of the industrial internet. It's it's very accessible. You know, its price point, which is like you can get it for three hundred dollars, something like that. You can you can you can spend a lot more on it, but the basic models are around there. Is very accessible for an industrial company. Obviously, they don't they don't mind that that number, so they make them available to their engineers. And a lot of those projects will start with a device like that. Also for uh, Digital signage, which needs sort of a lot of GPU power, you know, to push to one screen, two screens, you know, 4K graphics, all that stuff. Also, the Nook is very, very popular. Oh, that makes sense. And they just in January said that they were doing a new one with an AMD graphics card in there that's pretty impressive that can do 4K and some other fun stuff. I was wondering why you needed all that. And I thought maybe you needed it for machine learning, but I didn't think about digital science. Yes. 
Well, the the thing that we're actually, this is another side point on the industrial internet, but a lot of the use cases that we see in resin are actually what I kind of call the shadow IoT. You know, it's not necessarily something that's like very like ahead of its time. It's just taking things that are already there. You know, digital signs, smart meters, you know, industrial equipment that's been there for decades and just bringing it to the next level. And the next level in that case is making it easier to manage? Exactly. Internet connected, having containers, operating a lot more like a server in a data center than a old school embedded microcontroller. Oh, yeah. No, because that would be huge efficiencies. I remember tracking the data on how many people it took to manage one server, for example. You know, it was like one to a hundred used to be amazing. And now Lord only knows what Google and Facebook are doing, but it's probably pretty phenomenal. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's that that same curve is playing out, I think, on on the edge, I guess, as we as we call it now. Yes, we must call it the edge. It's fancy. Um, the edge. Exactly. It's, it's either U2's guitarist or a new computing. I like it. So let's go to NVIDIA's platform and machine learning, because this is this feels very much like the future. So I really want to dig into like, what types of applications are they doing that with? Who's doing it? I don't know. What can you tell me? Coming back to this edge computing term and what it means, a lot of people essentially started gravitating there because they wanted to filter data between, you know, very, very small and cheap devices that were, you know, like maybe dispersed around a factory or something like that and cloud. So they, they realized they couldn't just feed it all that straight into the cloud. It was just too much. So they would put these the gateways in the middle. So where the NVIDIA boards come in and, and really make another leap is when you can do learning or at least deploy machine learning model that you have pre-trained somewhere else because you can actually intelligently choose what the cloud needs to know. You know, what is interesting out of all of these informa- all this information I get. You can compress it, you can filter it with other technologies, but by using, you know, this kind of computational power, you can actually start doing applying models to it and doing a lot more sophisticated filtering before it ever reaches the cloud. And sometimes... You can even make decisions on the spot, right? If something is looking really strange and you don't have time to wait for an answer essentially from the cloud, you can make a decision yourself. And that use case is actually one where we, the, the TX2, TX1, TX2 platform works really well is for, you know, autonomous driving, you know, smart cars and all that stuff. You, you can't really think about it. It's very intuitive. You can't wait to decide what you're going to do with your car until the until the cloud responds. You have to make the decision on the spot with serious intelligence as you have within the car. That is true. And that kind of latency and everything would be terrifying. Terrifying if I'm going 60 miles an hour. Exactly. Imagine going into a tunnel and losing connectivity and then, <laughs> then what? <laughs> or worse, you'd have to travel really slowly to offset the latency. Oh, that would be equally frustrating. Okay. We can't let you go that fast. <laughs> You're like, you can only go, currently my bandwidth only allows me to take you places at 20 miles an hour. Let me out. Exactly. Okay. So once people start deploying these, what are some of the, I guess, pitfalls, the things that they're trying to do while they manage these fleets? What do you, If you're going to have Heroku for the edge, what are the things you're going to first try to do with it? The first thing you, you know, problem you have, and actually one, one of the places we see our customers saying, I'm so happy I found you guys because I, I was really not sure how I was going to do this is in the factory, even before you get out there. How do I flash these devices so that each one is unique? Each one is tagged in a way that when it starts up in my customer's factory or home or wherever it is intended to go, I, it actually checks back in. It's authenticated. I don't have to do some weird maneuver with my customer and I know which one it is. So all of that side of the workflow is 
can get really complicated if you haven't really built a tooling for it. So that's one side where we help them. And then in production, it's really a lot of the same things you kind of want to do with servers, right? You want to, as I mentioned, you want to bring them up in an orderly fashion, provision them. You want to make sure that if something goes wrong, either in your code or maybe some new Linux kernel exploit gets published and you, you need to push an update yesterday, that you can do that really well. But assuming all of those things, you kind of have them buttoned down, the next thing you want is is my application performing well? Is anything unexpected happening? And that's where you want to see logs. And as you figure things out, you learn things, you know, no plan survives contact with the enemy. And that also uh, applies to, to software and edge devices. So as you learn, you want to keep evolving that software. So updating the device, of course, is something that is one of the core things that people use us for. Okay. How is it not like servers? What is unique about industrial or enterprise environments? Yeah, no, it's, this is actually one of the questions we get a lot and, and one I'm, I'm really passionate about because I really believe you can't really just take technology from the cloud and transplant it. You have to rethink it for the, the edge. And that's, if you think about it, it's like you're taking machines that, let's say they would be in a data center, but you're expanding that data center to co- cover the whole globe. You know, you're, you're tearing down the walls and you're sort of growing it by thousands of times. All of a sudden you have new challenges. One is that the machines themselves are not as powerful as a server, right? Even a Nook is not as powerful as what runs in the data center. But also the connectivity isn't as granted. It's further away. So the latency is much longer. It could also be, you know, some kind of dodgy Wi-Fi connection, which you can't guarantee. So you have to start thinking for yourself. Essentially, the device has to make sure it can react to all possible situations without knowing that it can get back to the cloud. And then the other thing is you don't have controlled climate. You don't have guaranteed power source. People will pull the plug on you all the time, which again are things that are unheard of for a data center. So there's all these sort of environmental situational reasons. You need to think about it differently. And then the other part is more sort of philosophic. I don't know if you've heard before of the cattle versus pets analogy where, you know, we used to have our servers like they were pets. And then with new tools now, like Kubernetes, we can think of them as cattle. We just see them as this undifferentiated sea of processing power. And if one goes down, it doesn't matter. We can bring up another one, et cetera. That analogy doesn't actually work for the edge, right? When I have a smart lock in my house, I don't want the container that's on it to have left and have gone somewhere else because the somewhere else were free. I actually want that device specifically to keep functioning all the time. And if something goes wrong with it, the company that sold me that lock cannot just press a button and make another one appear. They actually have to ensure it's working all the time. And these small differences actually mean you have to think about the problem from a different perspective. Or that we should have higher regards for our cattle. I'm not sure. <laughs> Maybe both. Uh, somebody actually I spoke to said, well, this is like the jungle. You know, you have pets, you have cattle, and then you're out, out in the jungle. So it's kind of that, that analogy. That's how you would stretch the analogy. But yes, we should also be nicer to, <laughs> to our farm animals. Nicer to cows. That's the moral we're taking away here. Okay. Well, Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show this week. This has been really helpful. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if you'd like more IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. We'll see you next week. Thank you.